Hi, everyone. Welcome to Storytime. Today is December 14th, and I'm recording early in my studio today, again, ahead of the construction that is next door to my house. I will release this sometime today after I edit, and then the final installment of our Iron John story will be on the winter solstice in one week on the 21st. I hope you're having a wonderful month. I hope you are going slowly and appreciating and enjoying the process. I'm making my friends with process and it's really the way to go. I, I find that when I'm able to do that as opposed to product or the event or the end result, that process really brings out a beauty in us and in whatever we're creating or working on that can only be appreciated while it's happening. And it, and it adds something to the final product that could not be there if we weren't enjoying the process. So I just encourage you to do that as well. That's part of my practice now. And if you remember, last time we talked about the passing of Robert Bly, I was setting up why we are even doing the story of Iron John. And I just want to touch on one, one thing in particular here, and that is it's really important for men to tell this story. And my telling it as a woman in no way takes away from the unique experience that men have with this story. And in fact, I reached out to a friend of mine yesterday to see if he might want to share his thoughts on this story, and we'll see what he says, um, because I really value the masculine perspective on this story, and I don't want to appropriate anything from the masculine perspective by telling this story, but yet from a Jungian perspective and a psychological perspective, all these characters belong to all of us, and so... I just wanted to touch on that because definitely men are going to resonate with this story in unique and powerful and important ways. But we all have the masculine in our lives. Like I said last week, I am a daughter and a sister and a mother and a wife to men. And I have a very visceral experience from early on in my life what the masculine represents. And I would even go so far as to say, because when we are children and our parents represent, you know, the God to us because they're taking care of all of our needs, those early thoughts of what the divine are, are often tied up with our parenting. And so as we mature and as we step into our own and as we step into our own power, it's really important to bring into discernment what you think the masculine is, also what you think the feminine is, because as they relate to what you perceive of as the divine or source or your own best self, it may be getting in the way. And that's where I come to this story is a reimagining of what the masculine actually is. Because in my view, that's the great gift for me from this story. But this story 
is alive for everyone reading it. Myth is alive for everyone reading it. It belongs to all of us. And definitely as a quote-unquote men's story, it's super powerful for men, and, and I really welcome their perspective. In fact, recently I had something, I read something that pointed out a really powerful way to think about strength. And it's, it's a real nuanced position regarding strength. And this will tie back to what we've been talking about here in this podcast about are we creators or are we problem solvers? You know, and, and most of our lives, we've been conditioned to solve problems. And we do that in a variety of ways. I think it's a natural part of our development, spiritually and otherwise. And we look externally for better and better ways to do that, be it conscious communication, learning about ourselves, learning about psychology, learning about love languages, all those things. It's really important. Setting boundaries, all that's really important. But then there comes a time where you step into your role as a creator and using the imagination in a new way. And that's where I'm finding a lot of my energy is focusing right now. And it's a total game changer for me. And I feel like my truth is emerging now in a way that it never has before in my life, in all areas of my life. And I'm so, I guess, humbled by that and excited about that and touched by that. Again, there's that loving the process because I am still a work emerging for sure, but I'm trusting that more. And that's the heart I bring to everything I do here with you. Having said that, this idea about strength is an important nuance because I have valued my identity in the past, I would say particularly in the past decade as a strong person. I went through a hard divorce and I valued myself as a strong person. That was important. But now that identity is falling into the realm of problem solving. Let me explain. If I identify myself as strong, I will, by definition, have to always be creating situations and circumstances where I reinforce that identity about myself. I'm strong. Well, I think I'm over it. <laughs> I mean, I'm strong. I knew I could access that inner resource within me. And that was beautiful. And that's an important thing. I see my children doing that. I see them working that muscle. That's really important. But now I'm sort of stepping outside of that and saying, do I really want to go around continuing to create circumstances where I find myself strong all the time? Maybe it's enough to know that the strength is there if I need it, but just slip into joy and delight and wonder. Because then if that's how I'm defining myself, those are the conditions I will be creating. So the, the magic still point between strength as an identity and then on the flip side of that, not knowing your power at all, I think the still point between those two is knowing that the resource is there, but having the creative power 
to identify yourself more deeply than strong. So here on the one hand, I don't even know I have power. On the other hand, I am strong by God. Nothing can take me down. The sweet spot is somewhere in the middle of those two places. And I don't mean middle of the road. You don't have a perspective. I mean, you are choosing to create and you're identifying yourself as something deeper than either of those, powerless or strong all the time. Strength is something that will come in the present moment if needed. That's the sweet spot. That's where we are. That is what Iron John, to me, is revealing in this reading of it. And that's a reading of it that I had not been prepared for the the many times I've taught it prior. So that's, again, the beauty of myth and psychology is that it's ever new. It's ever revealing itself. Remember, we talked about Robert Bly's passing and last week, or last podcast, whenever that was, um, I read from the rag and bone shop of the heart and touched on Michael Mead's essay about those three layers of engagement that we have in society, that top layer, that first layer being the pleasantries that we engage in that just keep society humming along. That third layer being you know, spiritual peak, um, soul reveal, like the the moments that give life all of its meaning and, and wonder. And we can't swim in that soup all the time either, or we're just, <laughs> I mean, it's awesome. But, you know, we, we are tethered to this earth reality while we're here. And so we have to navigate between the pleasantries and this deep, powerful peak experience. And so that's that middle zone where all those difficult emotions can arise, like anger or jealousy or rage. Those difficult truths, and I say truths in air quotes because, of course, our our true essence, our true being is joy, is love, is imagination. But you know what I'm saying. Those truths that we're wrestling with while we're on our earth walk, if you will. So, and a lot of times when those are out of balance, those are often attributed to the masculine. You know, when those things, quote unquote, go awry, violence or rage or, or those difficult, volatile emotions. So I just wanted to remind us of where we had sort of set up this conversation. I'm going to tell part of the story today. I would love for you if possible, to get something warm to drink or refreshing to drink and to take a little time, whether that's sitting outside or sitting by a fire, because story time is a magic all of its own. And I would love to create that atmosphere with you in December with all the busyness and all the festivities and all of the celebrations of light however you choose to observe or honor them. It's special that we'll be doing part of the story today and concluding it on the solstice when the light actually returns to the Northern Hemisphere. So if possible, if you can make this a story time for yourself, do so. But right before we head into the story, I want to, of course, 
touch on our moon right now. We are in the cycle of the cold moon. Very appropriate for Northern Hemisphere peeps. And I wrote this about the new cold moon. And actually Saturday will be the full cold moon. So I hope that that silver light is shining down on you and lighting your way. I hope you enjoy that and bathe in it and know that it's your anchor. But here's some thoughts on the cold moon as it continues to wax. The sun slides low, diffused light, distant, and the cold moon declares her icy silver presence, unapologetic, unafraid, the leveling, balancing the spectrum. It is the cold moon's hour. I learn from her stance, proud in the night. I learn from her direct, unflinching light. I learn from her purity, the manner by which she defines herself. I learn from her. So as we settle into story time, as we settle into the magic and the psychological movement of Iron John, again, remembering all of these characters are alive within us, and wherever your mind goes as I'm telling the story is exactly where it's supposed to go. Let the story come alive in you. I'll ask a few questions. But just let the scene be. Let the story, the cold moon, this time of year all envelop you as we begin Iron John. There was once upon a time a king who had near his castle an enormous forest in which wild animals of all sorts lived. One day, he dispatched a hunter into those woods to take a deer, but the hunter did not return. Something went wrong out there, said the king, and the next day he sent two more hunters out to search for the first, but they did not return either. On the third day, he called all his huntsmen in and said, Scour that entire forest and stay at it until you found all three of them. Not a one of those hunters ever returned. And moreover, the pack of dogs that went out with them never came back either. No one after that dared to enter the forest and let it be in its deep stillness and solitude. Only now and then an eagle or a hawk flew over it. This situation went on for years. And then one day, a strange hunter appeared who wanted some work to do, and he offered to set foot in the dangerous woods. The king, however, refused to consent, saying, It is not safe in there. I have the feeling that you will end up like the others, and this is the last we'll see of you. The hunter replied, Sire, I'm well aware of the risk, and fear is something I pay no attention to. The hunter took his dog with him and walked into the forest. It wasn't long before the dog picked up the scent of game and went in pursuit, but he had hardly run three steps before he stood at the edge of a deep pool and could go no farther. A naked arm reached out of the water, grabbed hold of him, and pulled him down. When the hunter saw that, he went back to the castle, got three men who came with pails, and they bucketed out the water. 
When they got down to the ground, they saw a wild man lying there whose body was as brown as rusty iron. His hair hung down from his head, over his face, and all the way to his knees. They tied him with cords and led him back to the castle. At the castle, there was great astonishment over this wild man, and the king had him locked up in an iron cage that he had placed in the courtyard, and he forbade anyone on pain of death to open the locked door. He gave the key into the keeping of the queen. Once that had been done, people could go safely into the forest once more. The king had an eight-year-old son who one day was playing in the courtyard, and during that play, his golden ball fell down into the cage. The boy ran to the cage and said, Give me my golden ball. Not until you've opened the door for me, the man answered. Oh, no, said the boy. I can't do that. The king won't let me. And he ran away. The next day, the boy returned and asked for his ball again. The wild men said, If you open the door. But the boy would not. On the third day, while the king was out hunting, the boy came once again and said, Even if I wanted to, I couldn't open the lock because I don't have the key. The wild men said, The key is under your mother's pillow. You can retrieve it. The boy, who really did want his ball back, threw caution to the winds, went into the castle, and got the key. The cage door was not easy to open, and the boy pinched his finger. When the door stood open, the wild man walked through it, gave the boy the golden ball, and hurried away. The boy suddenly felt great fear. He shouted and cried out after him, Wild man, if you go away, they will beat me. The wild man wheeled around, lifted the boy onto his shoulders, and walked with brisk steps into the forest. Let's pause a moment here. Where is your mind going? What images are speaking to you? What has captured your imagination? It can be different every time you hear this story. The psyche is so alive. It's supporting us. But I'll ask a few questions that might assist your journey. Taking all of these images that we've encountered so far, is there a part of your experience or of your life that has been inaccessible to you, like this wild forest that nobody goes to anymore? Is there a part of you that's off limits to yourself? That can be one way of looking at the forest that is in the keeping of a wild man that has not yet been confronted or met. And what happens to our kingdom 
when there's a part of us that we don't have access to? What kind of loss is there when we are not able to move freely among all the parts of ourselves? Does the king have limitation? Because just cordoning off this part of ourselves is not really a viable choice long term. And what of this young hunter who says that he doesn't give attention to fear? He didn't say he didn't experience it, but rather that he didn't give attention to it. And is there a nuance there that's important? We're going to feel it, but do we have the opportunity to feed it or to starve it? Is that an option? And what of this wild man? This wild being at the bottom of a lake who is now caged, at least temporarily. And what of the young boy, eight years old? Who were you when you were eight years old? What qualities did you have? I remember being eight very vividly. I remember feeling most alive when I was eight. That is until just recently. I almost feel like my eight-year-old sensibility is back. Although I have the wisdom of an adult woman who's continuing to grow and learn, who's continuing to emerge. But that sense of wonder and belief and resilience that I felt at eight somehow is alive again? What would it be like to be in touch with your eight-year-old? Because in this myth, that sensibility is key. Being in touch with that part of us, the eight-year-old, the eight-year-old and the wild man have a connection The eight-year-old is who releases the wild man from the cage. And what of the golden ball? Is there something that was precious and dear to you around the time that you were a child that you may have lost track of? a hobby, an ability, a belief, a surety about yourself. Where in the time of Christmas right now, is that when you stop believing in Santa? Do you still believe in magic? And isn't it astonishing that the golden ball 
flows directly to the wild man, it is also linked to that. That what we experienced as so precious at age eight is linked to the recovery of the wild man in some way, which we will learn through the story. Are you concerned for the boy? Are you concerned that the wild man will harm him? And one more thought right now. Why is the key under the mother's pillow, under the queen's pillow? Here we have the introduction of the feminine into this story right now that has had all masculine figures thus far. Why is the key to letting the wild man out of the cage under her pillow? I know in my own relationship with my son, who is now 18, that Somehow, I don't give myself credit for this, but somehow I have mostly been able to stay out of the way of his needing to push me away, if that makes sense. All teenagers need to be other than their parents. That's really important developmentally, male and female. But I look at my son and he has, from such an early age, always had a sense of what he's wanted to accomplish. He's an entrepreneur already. And although I have continued, or before he turned 18, I continued to provide limits as a parent, I also really tried to stay out of his way because he needed to push me away to start to see who he is. And I don't know, somehow it just made sense to me that to keep him in my life by his own choosing, was that was essential. To let him sort of push against me and not make him wrong or feel guilty for that or feel like he needed to look after my feelings about that. There are many other areas of my life where I've had great challenge. That mercifully wasn't one of them. I just sort of got that. And again, there have been other areas of my life where, like in relationship, where it's been harder for me to have that clarity. And it's basically the same principle in relationship, in intimate relationship. But um, somehow I got it easier with my kids. And, And I feel close to them to this day. So I'll just, you know, drop that thought in there that maybe our ability to go against our parenting, go against pleasing whatever the mother of an eight-year-old would represent, like minding your manners and being polite and, um, you know, being a good kid in the world and listening to your teachers and all those sorts of things. Now, again, I'm not diminishing the role of the feminine because the feminine is also a wild archetype and powerful and beautiful. But this aspect, 
of the queen um, in this particular story, because it's such a small sliver of the story, feels to me as though it's more that sense of the parenting role, the the um, polite society, maybe that first layer that Michael Mead was talking about. I don't know. You know, you can you can work with that image yourself. That's just what's coming up for me right now. That maybe we have to be able to resist that and say, yeah, that, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to go against that. I'm going to rebel. And it's a right to rebel. It's actually essential to rebel. And are you 45, 50, 60 years old right now still questioning your right to rebel? If so, if so, that is limiting the discovery of the golden ball. That is limiting our connection to the wild man and the young boy meeting again. Let's continue. When the king returned, he noticed the empty cage and inquired of the queen how the wild man had gotten loose. She knew nothing about it, went to check the key, and found it gone. She called the boy, but got no answer. The king sent a search party out into the fields, but they did not find the boy. It wasn't difficult to guess what had happened, and great grief and mourning settled on the royal house. When the wild man had reached the dark forest once more, he took the boy from his shoulders, put him down on the earth, and said, You will never see your mother and father again, but I will keep you with me, for you have set me free, and I feel compassion for you. If you do everything as I tell you, all will go well. I have much gold and treasure more than anyone else in the world. The wild man prepared a bed of moss for the boy to sleep on, and in the morning took him to a spring. Do you see this golden spring? It is clear as crystal and full of light. I want you to sit beside it and make sure that nothing falls into it, because if that happens, it will wrong the spring. I'll return each evening to see if you've obeyed my order. The boy sat down at the spring's edge. Occasionally, he glimpsed a golden fish or a gold snake, and he took care to let nothing fall in. But as he sat there, his wounded finger was so painful that without intending to, he dipped it into the water. He pulled it out instantly, but he saw that the finger had turned to gold. And no matter how much he washed it, the washing did no good. Iron John came back that evening and said, Anything happened with the spring today? The boy held his finger behind his back to keep Iron John from seeing it and said, No, nothing at all. Ah, you've dipped your finger in the spring, said the wild man. We can let it pass this once, but don't let that happen again. Early the next morning, the boy sat again at the spring, watching over it. His fingers still hurt, and after a while, he ran his hand through his hair. One hair, alas, came loose from his head and fell into the spring. He immediately reached down and pulled it out, but the hair had already turned to gold. 
The moment Iron Dawn returned, he knew what had happened. You've let a hair fall into the spring. I'll allow it this time, but if it happens a third time, it will dishonor the spring, and you will not be able to stay with me any longer. The third day, as the boy sat by the spring, he was determined, no matter how much his finger hurt him, not to let it move. Time passed slowly, and he began gazing at the reflection of his face in the water. He got the desire to look straight into his own eyes, and in doing this, he leaned over further and further. All at once, his long hair fell down over his forehead and into the water. He threw his head back, but now all his hair, every bit, had turned gold and it shone as if it were the sun itself. Now the boy was frightened. He took out a kerchief and covered his head so that the wild man wouldn't know what had happened. But when Iron John arrived home, he knew immediately. Take the kerchief off your head, he said. The golden hair then came tumbling down over the boy's shoulders, and the boy had to be silent. You can't stay here any longer because you didn't make it through the trial. Go out into the world now, and there you will learn what poverty is. I see no evil in your heart, however, and I wish you well, and I'll give you this gift. Whenever you are in trouble, come to the edge of the forest and shout, Iron John, Iron John. I'll come to the edge of the forest and help you. My power is great, greater than you believe, and I have gold and silver in abundance. Let's pause here. What image is capturing your attention, capturing your imagination right now? Speaking for myself, as I tell you this story, the sun is just starting to stream in through my east-facing window. And there is that moment every day. And me living very much on the east coast, um, although I'm not at the shoreline, I imagine that every morning because I'm so relatively close to it. And I imagine in the morning when the sun comes up, it coming up over the Atlantic and streaming through the windows of my home. So here I am telling this story and the radiance is breaking through the window. And we have so many images of that golden light in this passage, in this section of the story. be it the spring or the hair or the snake or the fingertip. There's so much gold, so much brilliance. And we know, we keep learning that Iron John is wealthy. He has resources and treasure beyond measure. And he's now free and moving about the psyche. 
He's moving about this story because whatever that eight-year-old sensibility represents, let him free again. Let him start moving about. And sure, this young energy of the psyche, this eight-year-old is going to have to learn those limits like we talked about earlier. Learn who he is and learn who he isn't. But he's getting all these images of his true nature, of the truth that will continue to emerge through him throughout his life. And we get those glimmers early on, don't we? Don't we have those magical moments, those peak moments, those beautiful moments with a partner or our child or or the divine itself or our own strength and, and sense of resilience? We have those moments where we have that glimmer that, yeah, there's more going on here. There's more to me. There's more to my experience than just tending to business. And it's almost like you can't stop the gold revealing itself. But the boy is going to have to make it his own in this precious time, actually, with Iron John in the beginning. He's conditioned to know that it's there, but he has to make it his own. And that is our journey, isn't it? But what I'm finding so exciting for myself is I feel like now, at age 50, I'm returning to the place where suddenly that eight-year-old is alive in me, but yet I've traveled far, and I've learned what is and is not me in the intervening years. And what happens when all those things can come together again? Can we reimagine what the masculine energy that was once perceived as wild or destructive or vengeful or at the very least dangerous? This reimagining of that masculine wealth within us that is actually giving us access to our gold. What then? And I find Iron John's promise, the gift to the young boy, so moving. He knows it's essential that he, the young boy, go out into the world and discover these things for himself. He has to access his own interior gold. But Iron John says, I will be there for you. You're not alone. And how often do we think that we actually are? Time and time and time again. But we're not. And were we conditioned to feel that way from early childhood burdens? Our parents do the best they can, their parents before them, etc. There are generational patterns that get in the way of us seeing our own brilliance, our own resource, our own gold. It is what it is. 
But as adults, it is our job to remove those filters now. And for me, this story is so instrumental and beautiful in saying what the masculine actually is. There's the destructive wild and there's the nourishing wild, the abundant, fertile, wild nature. And we want that. We want that. We don't want the first layer living of just the niceties. We want that fecund, wild fertility. And it takes courage. And meeting it isn't always without its chaos. It can be messy. But we must have access to that. And this is actually the nature of the masculine. So ready to be on our side and assist us. Have you ever thought of it that way? Maybe you had a dad or a grandpa that was that way. And so that's distilled in you. Maybe you've been seen by the males in your life, whether you're male or female, and it felt good. And, and you sort of thrive in that space. But maybe you did not. And even so, we have to make it our own. Even if we had a beautiful experience of it as a child, we, we ultimately have to make it our own, seeing ourselves. And the happy ending of this story is that all the elements are there. They have not been lost. And how we come into relationship with them now is the happy ending or continuation because, again, we're honoring the process. So let's go for one more section here. Then the king's son left the forest and walked by beaten and unbeaten paths ever onwards until at length he reached a great city. There he looked for work, but could find none, and he had learned nothing by which he could help himself. At length he went to the palace and asked if they would take him in. The people about court did not know at all what use they could make of him, but they liked him and told him to stay. At length the cook took him into his service and said that he might carry wood and water and rake the cinders together. Once, when it happened that no one else was at hand, the cook ordered the boy to carry the food to the royal table. But because the boy did not want his golden hair to be seen, he kept his tarbush on. Such a thing as that had never happened in the king's presence, and he said, When you come to the royal table, you must take your cap off. He answered, Lord, I cannot. I have a sore place on my head. The king called the cook up, scolded him, and demanded how could he have taken such a boy as that into his service and told him to fire the boy and get him out of the castle. The cook, however, had pity on the youngster and exchanged him for the gardener's boy. Now the boy had to set out plants in the garden and water them, chop with hoe and spade, and let wind and bad weather do what they wished. 
Once in summer, when he was working in the garden by himself, he got so hot that he pulled his head covering off so that the breeze would cool his head. When the sun touched his head, his hair glowed and blazed out so brightly that the beams of sunlight went all the way into the bedroom of the king's daughter. And she leapt up to see what that could be. She spied the boy outside and called to him, Boy, bring me a batch of flowers. He quickly put the kerchief back on, picked up some wild flowers for her, and tied them in a bunch. As he started up the stairs with them, the gardener met him and said, What are you doing bringing the king's daughter such ordinary flowers? Get moving and pick another bouquet, the best we have and the most beautiful. Ah, the boy answered, the wildflowers. They have stronger fragrance. They will please her more. When the boy walked into her room, the king's daughter said, Take your head thing off. It isn't proper for you to wear it in my presence. He replied, I don't dare do that. I have the mange, you know. She, however, grabbed the kerchief and yanked it off. His gold hair tumbled down around his shoulders. It was magnificent to see. He started out the door to run, but she held him by the arm and gave him a handful of gold coins. He took them and left, but put no stock in them. In fact, he brought the coins to the gardener and said, I'm giving these to your children. They can play with them. The next day, the king's daughter again called the boy to her and told him to bring her more wildflowers. When he walked in with them, she reached for the little hat and would have torn it away, but he held on to it with both hands. Once more, she gave him gold coins, but he refused to keep them and gave them to the gardener as playthings for the children. The third day, things went the same. She couldn't manage to get the hat off, and he wouldn't accept the gold coins. So we pause again. Where is your imagination tugging you along? What images are most alive for you right now? I imagine you'll dream about them. I imagine you'll see them in your day-to-day, and you'll think about this story at odd times, seemingly odd times. Let it do its work. Let this story till the soil of your psyche. And I'll just add a few thoughts about this last section before we pause and finish the story next time at the solstice. But here we have this boy out in the world. And again, the the amount of time that takes place in a fairy tale could be years, decades, in fact, in waking life. But nevertheless, the boy, as we have to do, have to go out and make these experiences our own. And he doesn't have any skill, or he has to discover what skills he actually has. But he's well-liked, and it sounds like he has a certain amount of pluck and courage, which always serve us, leaning into that unknown. And of course, the castle and, and royal house he comes to is a very different one than the one he grew up in. 
and the the humble servants are are who teach him you know he does his work in the kitchen and in the garden and those beautiful beautiful metaphors of just the daily labors externally but most importantly internally that we do the simple tasks we need to return to of humility and just building character in our human walk. But he can't stop the gold from emerging. It's there, it's part of him, and it keeps revealing itself. And one of my favorite parts about this entire story is when the king's daughter sees him and asks for flowers. Here we have the arrival of another feminine figure, and this one has more sway than did the mother. This is that anima, that animating force that's starting to emerge again. Again, who dwells in all of us? It's she who can see the brilliance that he, the young boy, the young man now continues to hide. And it's almost as though she's the inspiration for that making its quickening appearance. And we'll definitely get into that part next week when we conclude this story. We can sense the climax of this story starting to gather. But the boy, the young man now, knows something precious of the wild. He knows that his gift to the king's daughter, he knows that she would appreciate the wild more than the cultivated rose. So something about his instinctual nature, something about his time with Iron John early on stays with him. Yes, the gold hair is with him. That's innate to him. But he also learned something valuable about that wild nature the wild that is nourishing and alive and ever new and eternal. He knows its value. And in fact, when she gives him coins of gold, which should be the hot ticket, should be the thing that is valued, he has an incredible discernment about gold versus value. And we come to that ourselves, don't we? In our experience with external money, perhaps. I have all kinds of lessons from my early life about what money is and and what the experience around money is. And I've had to look at that and say, is that helping me or not? I've had to take that template, if you will, into my present day and say, I need to bring my own discernment to that now. How do I provide for myself? How do I create meaningful work and meaningful resources? But do I have the discernment between external money and resources and my inner gold? And and what conversation are those two aspects of myself having? And am I putting the external 
as privileged over the internal, because if so, I will come up short in terms of resources. And I love that in this section of the story, our young man is seeing the value of that discernment. He values his inner gold more than the external gold. And so his priorities are right. That is essential for us to have lasting abundance. We can have fleeting abundance. We can have temporal abundance externally. But to have a lasting experience of always having the resources we need, we must prioritize and privilege the inner gold above the outer. Because that's actually where it flows. We all have a journey in regard to that. And then here, just starting to move into a relationship territory. This young man knows the value of keeping the wild, the nourishing wild alive and how essential that is to relationship. So with all these beautiful and shimmering and glimmering images, I wish you a beautiful week and we will connect once more on the solstice to conclude this story. Travel well, friends. Take good care.
Hi, everyone. If you're enjoying this podcast, remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if my work is nourishing your heart and imagination, consider supporting the Apothecary Podcast. Just follow the links to make a contribution. And for the full scope of my projects and offerings, including my weekly newsletter, visit LoriGreen.net.